Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law and its implications on our relationships, our markets, and our futures. I'm Siobhan. And I'm Bianca, and we're your hosts for this series. Today, we are incredibly honored to be speaking with Professor Justine Pilla. Professor Pilla is co-chair of the faculty's Health, Law, and Emerging Technologies Research Group. She wrote her PhD in patent law and is the author and editor of several books in the field of intellectual property. As well as IP, she teaches law and technology on a number of graduate and undergraduate courses for the faculty. So to start off, what is IP law? Well, IP law is formally part of the law of personal property. So uh, broadly speaking, it confers rights, which are defined under statute in uh, intellectual creations such as inventions and authorial works. So for patents, the rights conferred enable the inventors of the protected invention to prevent anyone else from making, selling, importing or otherwise commercialising their inventions in the territory of the protecting state for a limited period of 20 years. So I guess, you know, one thing that's maybe important to note is that unlike other property rights, you have to apply formally for a patent And to get one, you need to disclose your invention so the world knows what it is that they're prevented from using while the patent exists. Um, And also so that the world then has the information that they need to use your invention after the patent expires. The normative foundations on which IP law stands has been the subject of considerable criticism. How do we justify IP law? Yeah, no, there has, there has. You know, and remembering also that IP law and the world in which it operates have changed a lot over the years, making it something of a of a moving target that we're trying to justify. So IP laws today impact society um, and the political economy uh, a lot more than when first introduced hundreds of years ago, and this inevitably affects also our understanding of them and, and whether they can be justified, as you say. Um, And and IP law, you know, today especially is hugely important to global and and local industry with IP licensing alone accounting for over 5% of global trade. So when we think about this justificatory issue, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that patents themselves support entire industries such as the biotech industry and are a key driver of research and development, including in the medical and pharmaceutical fields. So just to give some sort of, you know, flavour for this, in in 2020 alone, so in last year alone, over 14,000 medical tech patent applications and over 8,500 pharmaceutical patent applications were filed in the European Patent Office alone. So that's more patent applications in medical tech than in any other field. So there are a lot of patents in the world um, and they're very important to, to society and to industry and the economy. So what are some justifications in favour of IP law? Well, um, I mean, views differ among people, as you might expect, and jurisdictions, uh, depending a lot also on the IP regime. So I think for patent law, um, justifications typically focus on the public interest and societal benefit. So the idea is that society benefits from access to new inventions, such as new vaccines and new antiviral treatments, and that patents help secure that access for the public by removing two significant hurdles that inventors would otherwise face in the hope that doing so, that removing those hurdles 
will encourage them to invent things of social benefit. So the first hurdle that inventors face is cost, including risk. In advanced technological fields like vaccine development, you can't just go into your shed and have a go. You need to be highly skilled, you need to have access to, to certain materials and equipment, and you need to be prepared to work for a long time without any guarantee of success. So to bring a, a drug to market, um, you need to spend a lot of money and have a lot of upfront sort of uh, investment, I guess, to cover the costs um, of all the, work, all the work that's required. And you also, even if you successfully devise a product, you also need then to get regulatory approval from the state, which requires a lot of clinical trials to demonstrate your product safety and efficacy. And then, of course, you know, having devised a, a, a vaccine, an idea for a vaccine, and and got the relevant regulatory approval, you need to actually introduce the invention into practice by manufacturing and distributing doses of the vaccine that you've devised, all of which requires further time and investment. So this is not um, an endeavour that, that people undertake or, or could be expected to undertake without some hope at the end of recovering their costs and making a profit. And vaccines are a really good case in point. So by way of example, in 2019, the top 10 pharmaceutical companies reportedly spent 82 billion US dollars on developing potential vaccines and treatments. So it's a lot of money. And it's when inventors come to commercialise their inventions that they face their second impediment, which is free riding by others. So inventions are not like chairs or tables. They don't have actual physical form. They're intellectual creations or ideas for doing something useful, like producing a substance that can drain the body to, to fight a virus. And like all ideas in the digital environment especially, once disclosed, they can be reproduced and used by any number of people at the same time at low cost. So in principle, a company might spend years and, and billions of dollars devising a vaccine, securing regulatory approval for it and introducing it to market, only to have other companies come in and reverse engineer the vaccine or get a copy of its recipe to produce their own doses for sale in competition with the inventor. And the result will then be a vastly diminished market for the inventor and uh, reduced opportunity to recover its initial drug, its initial, you know, drug research and development costs. So, yeah, so th that's where patents come in. Um, they, by giving inventors an exclusive 20-year window in which to exploit their inventions, uh, they create an opportunity for inventors to recoup their costs and make enough profit to, to continue being motivated to invent. So in this way, they provide incentives for people working in resource-intensive industries like medical research and development um, to develop their socially useful products such as vaccines and essential medicines. And they also, if you like, represent something of a reward for the people who do invest time and money in devising these useful inventions. And some might say, too, that by preventing free riding, they promote norms of commercial fairness and moral dealing. So you might say it's not right if you spend a lot of time and money, great commercial risk, devising something as valuable as a vaccine, then I can simply come along, take your idea, produce doses of your vaccine and make a lot of money that would otherwise be made by you. So I guess this is essentially a utilitarian or instrumentalist justification for the patent system with a, a bit of an unjust enrichment or equitable dimension thrown in as well. So the message of the patent system 
to, to inventors or would-be inventors is compete among yourselves to invent and we'll reward whoever succeeds with a limited commercial monopoly, provided your invention is sufficiently new and useful and that you publish it immediately so that even before your patent is granted, the world knows about your invention and can learn from it and try and build on it. I guess there, there do exist more fully-fledged moral arguments for, for IP law that are based on, on the nature of intellectual creations as expressions of a person um, or products of, of human labour. But these, these arguments, I think, are, are less prominent for patents than for other types of, of IP, such as copyright. The utilitarian arguments which you have just mentioned have often been criticised for a lack of empirical evidence in support of them. How much weight should we give to these criticisms? Well, I think it's true. I mean, I think that, you know, there are a whole lot of assumptions that that underpin um, this, this kind of justification. The assumption, for example, that but for... Uh, the incentive of, of a patent, uh, you know, the promise of this limited commercial opportunity to, to exploit one's patented technology, people wouldn't have the necessary motivation to try to, to, to invent new and, new and useful inventions. And that's an assumption that we make, but it's never really tested empirically because we've had a patent system for so many hundreds of years, so we've never actually been in the situation of not offering this commercial incentive and seeing how it does in affect, for example, rates of um, rates of of, of uh, innovation and invention. Uh, we also assume that you know the carrot has to be so big, the incentive has to be so big. We have to have this monopoly lasting for twenty years, and it, and the monopoly has to you know give people this right to to prevent all of these different things, making and selling and importing and what have you. And again, but for you know a carrot of this size, people wouldn't have the relevant the relevant incentive, and it's just not known. I, I think people generally accept though that it's more likely to be true for, as I say, resource-intensive industries like, you know, like the pharmaceutical and medical industries because of the very high costs of, for example, developing a vaccine, but also of getting the necessary regulatory approval that needs to be gotten in order to, to have, you know, permission from the state to actually introduce what are potentially very dangerous products into the market. Um, it is generally accepted that they're more likely to be valid for some areas of technological research than for others. I mean, and, and for example, an industry where there really is a lot of question about whether this is valid is the software industry, where it's thought that actually, um, you know, it's enough just to be first to market with your product uh, in order to, to recoup enough of the commercial um uh, you know, the, the the profit that you need to recoup in order to be motivated to go on and try and come out with a new software product. But that doesn't really work so well in, in, in the pharmaceutical and medical industries, I think. If we are to assume that IP law has a weak normative foundation in terms of its utilitarian benefit, can we rely on another justification? So, so firstly, I mean, I should probably say that, that some people might dispute the idea that the patent law does have a shaky normative basis, but, but even if it does, let's assume that it does, I, I think, you know, I, I think you would recognise from your own studies in jurisprudence recently that there is a philosophical question here about law in general. I mean, a, a hallmark of, of liberal democratic states is that they don't simply ignore laws when it's convenient to do so. Um, 
So, so I think the default position would generally be that where you have laws in place, for example, patent laws guaranteeing uh, that, that any person who does devise a new and useful invention and makes it available to the world will be rewarded with this, you know, this property right, this limited monopoly right. Um, and where you have people relying on those laws, as drug companies surely do, in undertaking their, you know, their... Um, their research and development in, in, in this field, that those laws should be either enforced consistently and according to their terms as a matter of the rule of law or repealed um, or amended by our appropriate democratic processes. So, so I think, that's a, yeah, I think that, that would generally be the, the position that we would take and, and, you know, and the only exception to that really would be or might be where the laws are plainly morally abhorrent um, or where the circumstances are just so desperate, sufficiently desperate to require desperate measures, you know, as in times of, of war. But even then, I mean, there's a complication here, and, and it's a legal and a political complication, uh, which is the TRIPS agreement. So um, the TRIPS agreement is an international agreement which contains detailed provisions on patents that all WTO countries are required to comply with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so an important question is, is is what TRIPS permits and whether its provisions allow states simply to, you know, to, to refuse to grant patents because, you know, it feels that actually in this particular case they're not, they're not normatively justified um, or, or indeed to repeal by appropriate democratic processes their, you know, entire patent regimes. Um, and I think the answer is that it, it really doesn't. And, and so the second question, if you like, is whether the TRIPS agreement um, offers some other solution to whatever problem it is that the patent system is perceived to, to cause in the context of COVID, for example. Do different jurisdictions have different justifications for IP law? And does this influence the IP laws, substantive IP laws across different jurisdictions? Um, I think the general understanding of of patent systems um, is pretty similar across jurisdictions. And and again, you know, having just referenced TRIPS, this is helped to some extent, at least by the international norm-setting agreements like TRIPS. Um, But there are perhaps some some subtle differences um, that, that, yeah, that I would probably say reflect wider differences in our view of property rights in general and also of innovation, which are two sort of key concepts of relevance in the patent context, patents being a form of property and also patent systems generally being understood as, as existing to support innovation by, by encouraging invention. So, for example, you know, US writing on patents tends to reflect sort of traditional liberal views about property and innovation as being inherently good for society. So property and the pricing mechanism um, is is thought to be good because it supports free market economies that ensure that goods and services, uh, the goods and services protected by the property rights, end up in the hands of the people who value them most and also thought to be good for society because, you know, by supporting free market economies, they disperse property rights, disperse power uh, throughout the community among individual buyers and sellers rather than concentrating it in the hands of the state, which is, you know, what we like in liberal democratic systems. 
And innovation, which is what, according to this instrumentalist justification, patent systems promote, um, is, is, according to this sort of traditional liberal view, uh, good for society because it supports a culture of experimentation and, and eccentricity and anti-authoritarianism. Um, and it results in the diffusion of, of new ideas that benefit, to the, that benefit the public. So I think on that sort of US view, if I can sort of describe it in those terms, that US sort of traditional liberal view of patent systems, provided patent systems operate in the way that other property systems operate by supporting a free market economy and promoting this culture of innovation, then they should be good for society. Um, and the way for patent systems to do this, uh, it's generally said, is to offer generous incentives, actually, to would-be inventors and then just ensure um, that market conditions are, are, you know, exist that are conducive to the efficient allocation of patented products and other technologies. I think that's a U. I I would describe that as a quite, you know, quite a, a, a North American view of the cathedral. And, and in Europe, you know, there's a lot of that thinking too. We subscribe also to that kind of thinking. But perhaps a little bit less um, in that perhaps in Europe we're a little bit more influenced by fundamental rights. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and even in the UK, <laughs> you know, as a result of our, our now-ended membership of the EU. Um, and, and so perhaps, you know, in keeping with that, we're more inclined to adopt a kind of constitutional uh, mindset that sees IP not only in economic and sort of free market terms, but also in terms of constitutional values, such as human dignity and the right to life and, and public health. Though, you know, whether those different perspectives have any practical impact um, is a different question. But I think you can see those subtle differences, actually, I would say, in the way that we think about patent systems. Shifting the topic slightly, I think it's important to consider um, IP law in the context of our current pandemic and the role it plays. COVID-19 has taken millions and millions of lives. And especially today, we can see the disproportionate effect the virus has on the developing world. So when the vaccine, um, which is patented, plays such an important role in stemming the effects, the drastic effects of such a pandemic, can the utilitarian justification still bear any weight? Yeah, well, so in a way that's you, you, so that's putting another way the question that you asked before, isn't it? I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. how can we justify the enforcement of patents in, um, you know, during a pandemic? And I sort of turned that around and said, well, you know, in a liberal democratic state, how can we justify just deciding not to, you know, not to enforce laws that exist? Mm and you know, suggested though then that that actually one justification that we might that we might put forward even in a liberal democratic state is if we believe that enforcing patents is morally abhorrent in some way, because I think I hope we would all agree that none of us has a you know that that we shouldn't be we shouldn't be enforcing morally abhorrent laws. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I guess, you know, maybe, you know, maybe maybe a question to ask is whether or not the enforcement of, of patents over COVID treatments 
mm-hmm. is is morally abhorrent, and if it is, maybe then that would be a justification just for for suspending those patents. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, certainly not helping vulnerable people access medicines mm-hmm. that they need is morally abhorrent. I'm, I'm sure we'd all agree with that. Um, and, but I guess the question really is whether patents are to blame for that and, and whether, it, whether you know, patents are the reason for the slow and unequal rollout of vaccines that we're seeing, which I, I assume is, the, is, 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 is somehow what's motivating your, your question about this. Yeah. But, but what's causing that? So, you know, some people do say patents. They say, well, patents, you know, patents give drug companies this monopoly over the manufacture and distribution of vaccines. Mm-hmm. And that monopoly prevents other companies, you know, including in developed countries, um, from manufacturing and distributing distributing generic versions of, you know, of the vaccines for their own communities. So surely, you know, suspending patents is the solution because it would enable those generic drug manufacturers around the world to increase the production and distribution of vaccines and thereby solve the problem, which is the slow and unequal distribution of vaccines. But, but I think there is a bit more to it than that. And maybe, mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, we need to understand, you know, what more to it there is in order to devise an appropriate solution. So, I mean, people say, and it's, you know, again, it's sort of it goes back to this difficulty of, of knowing the facts on the ground of establishing empirically what the situation is. But people say, and the drug industry says, um, that vaccines are complex products that require more to produce safely than just you know, the recipe for producing them, which, by the way, is disclosed in the patent. And, you know, particularly for, like, the messenger RNA vaccines, such as the Moderna and Pfizer ones, which are very difficult to replicate uh, Mm. by a generic uh, drug manufacturer without additional know-how and technology and without expert assistance on the ground. Mm -hmm. And, and, And drug companies say all of this can only, all of this additional knowledge and know-how and technology and expert assistance on the ground can only feasibly be provided by them, by, by those, you know, Modernas and Pfizer's and original and originator drug companies under a licensing scheme. They have to be provided under terms, of course, and, and that means under a licensing scheme. Um, and that, you know, to allow generic versions of their vaccines to be produced without that kind of support and oversight, i.e., outside of a, a light, proper licensing system would be dangerous because you'd end up with people producing vaccines that they don't have without the relevant, you know, technology and know-how and expertise, which creates a risk that there would be dangerous vaccines, dodgy vaccines being produced and made available to the public, which, of course, is not what we want. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very tricky, though, because then it suggests that we need not only to suspend um patents, if you like, so that anybody can manufacture them. But we need to to ask those originated drug companies to ensure that anybody who wants to manufacture them has, you know, has their support, has expert, is provided by them with expertise and technology and know-how. And you really can't ask, private, I mean, companies are private entities. You can't ask private entities, if you like, just to work to do all of that um, for free, 
Mm-hmm. And actually, Italy, I don't know if you've seen in the paper recently, but, but there's been a report in the last week that, that Italy has been wanting to establish vaccine manufacturing sites in its territory, I mean, to supply its own population, but also to supply the rest of the EU because of the trouble that the EU is having in, in securing vaccine doses mm-hmm. and has been in talks with a number of, of um you know, of uh, manufacturers of the messenger RNA vaccines, including Moderna. But Moderna has reportedly said that it just can't. It, it can't support the the establishment of Italian manufacturing sites because it just doesn't have the capacity to oversee the transfer of technology required to produce its vaccine to those manufacturing sites in Italy or to staff the sites with required expertise. So what can we do? Um, would a potential solution maybe be to leverage domestic manufacturing for vaccines, um, which require less complex expertise? For example, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine, which uses technology that we're more familiar with? Um, Or would it be to require some sort of compulsory licensing scheme? So, yeah, absolutely. Potentially, potentially, legally, you know, it should be. And, you know, it takes us back to TRIPS, you know, and I said that TRIPS doesn't allow states actually just to just go around and, and decide that they're not go- they're going to suspend their patents or even repeal via democratic process their entire patent regime. But it does allow some mechanisms that might help here, and one mechanism, as you say, is compulsory licensing. So under the TRIPS agreement, a state can, in, um, in a national emergency or other um, extreme circumstances, can just authorise the use of a patented technology such as a vaccine without getting the patentee's permission on terms, you know, reasonable terms that, that um, it decides in order to secure the technology, uh, access to the technology by its local population. So a question is, well, why aren't all the states who need access to these vaccines granting compulsory licences um, in respect of the in respect of the patents? And the answer, or one answer, is is well, two answers are generally given. Firstly, oh, because they those states would need to introduce laws to do that, because you can only to, to grant a compulsory licence requires a national law. Okay, but but secondly, and perhaps you know, and, and this is the sort of political impediment. They say, oh, they're they're scared of sort of backlash from the the wealthy countries that stand to benefit from um, you know from from um, not having their you know from from having the from licensing the patents according to market terms on on for a price that's going to be higher than the price that's paid under a compulsory license which is a sort of political impediment Um, so that's sort of so compulsory licensing is in principle there and can be used but apparently states don't want to use because they don't want to annoy that the u.s and the u and and the uk Um, i guess though the other thing though is that just getting a compulsory license is not going to solve the problem because it's not enough for companies to have the right to manufacture they need all this additional expertise and know-how and and um, and technology, which can only apparently be provided by the originated drug companies, and you don't get that under a license. You can't a compulsory license, if you like, can't compel. It only covers the patented technology. It can't compel. You can't compel under compulsory license a company to provide all of that additional stuff that is required to to actually that might be required actually to manufacture. 
So, but there are other things that govern. I mean, going back to your question about well, what is the solution then, if it's mm-hmm. not compulsory license, not compulsory licensing, or not only compulsory licensing? I mean, I think you know, you've mentioned you mentioned to me previously. I think this you know this really important point, which is that actually you know the whole justification for patent systems is built on the idea that. Um, if we want these companies to assume this cost and this enormous risk of spending billions of dollars every year uh, in an attempt to devise vaccines and risking failure, um, then we have to offer them this incentive. But, of course, in this context, uh, a lot of the cost and the risk that has been assumed by these drug companies in developing the vaccines has been underwritten by states through public investment. And so, if, if the, so, the states have funded a lot of the sort of research and development of these vaccines. And so, the question is, well, um, why didn't those states then sort of, you know, secure certain legal commitments? Or one question is, why didn't they secure certain legal commitments from the beneficiaries of the public funding at the time at which they offered the public funding? Um, and the states, I mean, there are many things that the states could have done that would help. They could, they could have required the sharing of information, you know, by any successful drug company with with other um, generic drug manufacturers in the event of devising a, a successful vaccine. They could, have, of course, have capped the price. AstraZeneca has capped the price of its of its vaccine doses to three to four dollars per dose during the period of the pandemic, so that could have just been required for all all um, all drug companies that managed to produce successfully a vaccine. Uh, there were many other things that they legal commitments that governments could, through law, essentially contract law, have secured from the beneficiaries of their public funding, but which they didn't do. They could have required that IP, the IP be licensed on certain terms as well. They didn't do that. And now all, there's all this discussion about somehow trying to extract those commitments ex post, you know, after the fact. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess the point is it's just not clear. It's not clear to what extent the problem that there's a problem with patent law here mm-hmm. on the one hand and, and to what extent, if you like, there's just a problem if, for example, with the government failing to take sufficient responsibility mm-hmm. uh, for, for public health of its own population and, and of, of the global community. It's interesting to discover that our government could have done more to stem the drastic effects of this pandemic. That's all the questions that we have today. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Yeah, no problem. Well, it was, it was lovely to speak to you both. Thank you for having me. That was Professor Pilla speaking with us on IP law, patents, and vaccines. For more interesting legal discussions and writings, visit the OUULJ's blog and read our annual publications. In the next episode, we will be discussing family law with Professor Rachel Taylor and Professor Shazia Chowdhury.